the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour. Mustering cattle using a drone. It has been talked about for years. Today, you will hear from the Australian company looking to make this a commercial reality. The way I see it, it's just another form of pressure. So just like a a dog, a motorbike, uh, someone on a horse or helicopter, the drone acts as a form of pressure that the animals, which we proved last year, um, effectively move off. Also today, the company mining lithium near Darwin has just finished building its processing plant. But how is the open pit faring in all of this wet weather? You'll find out soon... And as we had to air this afternoon, there is a string of weather warnings and the Victoria Highway remains closed to the west of Timber Creek. We'll get the latest from the Bureau when we speak to them at five past one. This is the Country Hour. Broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. Well, around 250 kilograms of sea cucumber, along with 15 shark fins, have been seized from an Indonesian fishing vessel that was intercepted in Australian waters. The boat and its eight crew members have since been towed to Darwin. To tell us more about this is Peter Venslovis from AFMA, which is the Australian Fisheries Management Authority. Uh, Peter, what can you tell us about this vessel? Uh, The vessel was uh, sighted by aerial surveillance coordinated by Maritime Border Command um, early last week and uh, it was then subsequently intercepted by uh, a Royal Australian Navy patrol vessel, HMS Armadale, uh, and apprehended and the vessel and the crew have been brought to Darwin uh, and AFMA is conducting further investigations into the activities of the crew. Uh, on board the boat, we found around about 250 kilograms of tree pang, which is uh, sea cucumber, uh, and 15 shark fins. So they certainly had uh, catch on board uh, and they're equipped for fishing, hence the uh, action to bring them to port for further investigation. 250 kilos of sea cucumber on a single vessel. It sounds like a lot. How does that compare to other tree pang busts that you've seen over the years? Uh, the quantity of catch on board does vary depending on you know at what stage we intercept them, whether it's at the beginning of their f- illegal fishing foray or near the end. But 250 um, kilograms isn't that unusual. Uh, we have intercepted boats that have had up to 400 kilos on board. So uh, anything ranging from, you know, a couple of kilos to upwards of 400 kilo. Um, but uh, the norm would be something less than that because um, uh, we seem to be intercepting them early on in their foray. So that's a good thing from our perspective. Yeah, roughly where was this boat intercepted? Uh, it was well within the Australian fishing zone off uh, northwestern Australia, um, hence the um, the action to intercept and bring to port. So um, it certainly is is a is an activity that we want to investigate and um, deal with strongly because we take illegal fishing very very seriously um, from foreign uh, vessels. They're not allowed to fish in Australian waters, uh, so it's important that these 
uh, vessels are intercepted and the crews are dealt with appropriately through the courts and uh, that's what's happening in this particular instance. So the boat and the crew now in Darwin, what happens next? Okay, the boat is currently uh, at a quarantine marker and we'll be looking at um, disposal of that vessel and that will entail uh, destruction because um, these vessels are wooden hulled. Uh, they uh, don't meet Australian survey standards, so they can't be resold or anything. So it's been seized and will be um, dealt with through a disposal process. Uh, we'll uh, continue with our investigations in terms of the activities of the crew and then prepare a brief of evidence for the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions or the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions Office to consider the laying of charges against um, the crew. And how severe could those charges potentially be? Uh, the, the maximum fines for these types of um, activities are, are, are quite substantial, but um, because of the uh, situation with these crew members and so forth, the sort of average fines that we do get, you know, can, can range between, you know, $1,000 each up to, you know, $10,000 each. Um, but the uh, maximum fines are uh, much higher than that. But the main deterrent, I, I must stress, is the uh, seizure and destruction of their vessel. That is a big one for them yeah. in terms of losing losing their, their boat. And uh, that is uh, the main deterrent in uh, these matters. Because would these fishermen even have the capacity to pay a $10,000 fine? Uh, that That is an issue, yeah, exactly right. And um, hence the uh, the fines are levelled at what the court thinks is appropriate for the circumstances, you know, of the of the particular fishers. Has this case already appeared in court? Uh, not yet. We're in the process of finalising our investigation and um, aim to have uh, a brief of evidence with the DPP in the coming days. Now, during the pandemic, there was a real spike in illegal fishing vessels entering Australian waters. What would be your summary of the current situation, Peter? Uh, just as a bit of history, um, illegal or the incidence of illegal foreign fishing in Australian waters peaked out in the mid-2000s uh, when we were apprehending hundreds of boats per year and peaked out at you know, 648 interceptions in the financial year 2005-2006. Then from about 2008-2009 financial year for the decade up to the uh, 2020s, uh, we were averaging between 15 and 25 interceptions per year. Uh, but numbers uh, increased in 20. 2020-21 financial year to 85 interceptions um, and then the following year 337 interceptions but for this financial year from the 1st of July um, we're down to 85 so there was a upsurge uh, a maxing out of numbers last financial year and it looks like there's been a decline this financial year and what can you put that down to do you think um well, it's a multifaceted approach that we uh, undertake or apply in these well, to this particular issue, uh, and that involves on-the-water enforcement involving the seizure of catch um, equipment, vessels. Also, as we're seeing with this particular case, prosecution of offenders. But not only that, but also 
other lines of effort directed towards tackling the problem at its source in Indonesia. And uh, we have a very good and effective working relationship with our counterpart agencies in Indonesia in terms of uh, conducting collaborative patrols out there on the water. Uh, and we also um, gain assistance by the authorities in Indonesia to arrange uh, for educational programs to be conducted in the ports where these vessels come from. And by that, I mean, in, in particular, officers from AFMA, Australian Fisheries Management Authority and Australian Border Force, uh, visiting those particular ports where these operators come from to explain where the boundaries are, hand out chartlets and so forth, and explain to them what the ramifications are if they get caught. And uh, essentially that means they run the risk of losing their vessel, their livelihood, and um, that they shouldn't, um, shouldn't be undertaking those forays in the first place. And just finally, Peter, 250 kilos of sea cucumber. What do you do with that? Uh, that was disposed of at mm. sea. Yep. Um, and uh, that's uh, usually the fate with the catches is that we do we return catch to the water when we intercept vessels um, as a matter of course. But in some cases, the product can still be alive. So that that's a good thing from that perspective. But um, uh, our usual practice is to dispose of all the catch at sea. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today and keeping us up to date. Yep. Not a problem. Thanks, mate. Big thanks to Peter Venslovis, who is General Manager, Fisheries Operations Branch with the Australian Fisheries Management Authority right across the Territory. On the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. We are going to have a quick tune by Casey Musgraves. And then up next, you'll hear from the Chief Executive of Core Lithium, and we'll learn more about this new processing plant that's been built on the outskirts of Darwin. Right across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Our text number is 0487 1057 and you're always welcome to text in on any of the topics that have been raised on the program or maybe stuff we're not even talking about. Got one message here, and it's an important one from Marty. He says, G'day, Matt. For all of our Kiwi friends out there listening to the Country Hour, let them know that New Zealand just beat the Poms by one run in a great finish in the test match against England. He's right. This is it a moment ago. Needed here for England. Winning a test match by one run. Well done, New Zealand. Hello there. My name's Norm Hedditch from Taruna Proprietary Limited and we're Spanish mackerel fishermen in the Northern Territory and you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> Thank you for that information, Marty. 0487991057. Let's turn our attention now to the resources sector. Core Lithium says it has finished building a processing plant at its lithium mine near Darwin and has now produced its first volumes of spodumene concentrate. Gareth Manderson is the Chief Executive of Core Lithium. I got him to tell us a bit more about this new processing plant. 
Yeah, so the dense media separation plant is essentially the concentrator. It takes ore from the pit and concentrates it to the final product that we then ship to our customers. Once again, it's a huge milestone for, for Cool Lithium employees, our contract partners, uh, but also for the territory and, uh, and Darwin in particular. Uh, right now, it's about tuning and understanding how the plant works and, and starting to ramp it up to, uh, to full production rates. For our audience, can you explain to them what a what a handful of spodumene concentrate looks like? It's uh, like a fine gravel, uh, white and greenish in nature or in colour. And, and why is this product beneficial for your mine compared to just shipping out ore? Uh, so it's uh, it's a value added product. We we concentrate it. We we, we that means we basically uh, upgrade. Uh, the uh, the proportion of uh, lithium that uh, that is in the material, and then it goes on to a converter for further processing to uh, become uh, lithium hydroxide, which is an input material for battery manufacture. Is the company ever looking to do all of the processing at this end? We do have a study underway to look at further processing to lithium hydroxide yep. uh, in the territory. Uh, very early stages. Uh, look, it's a possibility down the track. Right now, we are very focused on uh, producing uh, concentrate uh, from the mine at Finnis just outside of Darwin. And when is the first shipment of this concentrate due out of Darwin Port? Well, we're in the process now of... Uh, of putting that shipment together, and we should be able to see it leave the Darwin port in the coming months. Who are the main customers for Spodumene Concentrate at the moment? So we have great uh, partners in Yakwa and Gangfang, and they are our two uh, primary customers, both of whom are in China. And just before I let you go, Gareth, lots of wet weather around the top end at the moment. How is your mine faring? Well, like every mine in the Territory, you, uh, you find some challenges with water uh, entering into the pit and across the site during this particular period. Uh, I'm really pleased with the work that the Core Lithium team uh, is doing to manage that water and, and discharge it uh, off-site uh, off in a controlled way to ensure that uh, it, uh, it doesn't impact uh, the environment. Uh, and we're, uh, we're working our way through the next couple of months. You know, we've got, um, got a couple more months to go for this wet season. How bad has it been, though, in terms of production out there? Well, in, uh, in that heavy period of rain that we had in December, we had water enter the pit. Um, so that's meant that it has actually uh, impacted the, the mining operations. Uh, but we're in the process of, uh, of working, working through that so that we can get back to, uh, to mining ore in the coming months. And Core's share price, it's dropped about 20% just this month. Have you got any commentary on why that is? Well, we've seen uh, just general deterioration in the uh, in the pricing of shares for all lithium producers and uh, and project proponents. So I think it's just the world in general. Uh, we're seeing, uh, just, I think, uh, yeah, the ASX has been down over the last week or two as well. Uh, look, these things uh, happen from time to time. I think lithium is still uh, an excellent commodity to be in. It uh, it does enable. Um, this uh, carbon reduction future that uh, we are all working quite hard to achieve. That is Gareth Manderson, who is the chief executive of Core Lithium. That company has finished building its processing plant at the mine near Darwin and is producing its first volumes of spodumene concentrate. It is 11 to 1.
Now, in the Kakadu region of the Northern Territory, there is a uranium deposit out there known as Jabaluka. The traditional owners of that region have long objected to it being mined. So it is with great interest that two mining companies that are involved in Jabaluka, they have just released some very different valuations of this prospect. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Dan, how do ERA and Rio Tinto's opinions differ when it comes to Jabaluka? Yeah, so ERA, or Energy Resources Australia, it actually owns that Jabaluka prospect um, near Jabari out in the Kakari National Park. Um, that company, it's also responsible for currently rehabilitating the Ranger uranium mine. Yep. And it's in, it's in its annual report, ERA put a valuation of $90 million on that Jabaluka deposit. Right. So the traditional owners say we never want to see it mined. ERA reckons it's worth $90 million. On its balance sheets in right. its books. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is very different um, to what ERA's major shareholder, Rio Tinto, reported. Um, in its annual report, it put a dollar value of zero on Jabaluka. It has written it off its books. Um, Rio has declared there are no reasonable prospects of mining Jabaluka because traditional owners say they don't want it to be mined and they'll never say yes. Um, yeah, so Rio has pretty much written Jabaluka off of its books. Uh, Justin O'Brien, the CEO of the Gunjapni Aboriginal Corporation, which represents the Mirar traditional owners, um, explained what's happened to Felicity James. In uh, the annual report just released, Rio Tinto have acknowledged that uh, there is no uh, reasonable economic prospect of mining the Jabaluka deposit and have therefore decided to no longer report Jabaluka as a mineral resource. So they have written down the value of Jabaluka to zero. And after such a long, protracted campaign against the unwanted development of the mine, it's a, it's a big win for the Mirror. Yeah, and why, why is this such a big win, just to go into that in a bit more detail? Jabaluka is a, a small valley in Kakadu National Park. It has... Um, uh, hundreds of galleries of ancient rock art, thousands of different images. It has Australia's oldest human occupation site, the date of 65,000 years, comes from a site called Mujadeva on the Jabaluka Minerale. It is close to um, a sacred and dangerous dreaming site of significance to Aboriginal people right across the top end. And for many years, the Mirau people have opposed the destruction of their cultural heritage there and been joined in a massive protest in the, in the 1990s. You know, 5,000 people over an eight-month period uh, blocked the mine site. Um, and then Rio Tinto acquired the property. And since then, we've had a good relationship with, with Rio Tinto. They committed many, many years ago to uh, not developing the Jabaluka deposit without the support of the Mirar people. They've stood by that. I think the, uh, the travesty of the destruction of the caves at Chukun Gorge and the Pilbara has focused, and the consequences of that uh, has focused their minds if they ever needed such a focus. But they have stood steady, and the Mirror today can celebrate the fact that the majority owner of ERA has indicated it no longer sees any economic prospect at Jabaluka. So what then do you make of ERA's full-year report, which I understand says that the value is still $90 million? Well... It's it's astounding that ERA, notwithstanding what their majority shareholder is saying, 
uh, still places this bearing, the carrying value of Jebeluka at 90 million. They refer to Jebeluka as a large, high-quality uranium ore body of global significance. Well, look, they would do well to follow the lead of the major shareholder here and the mood of the Australian nation about what else, what elsewhere they call culturally and environmentally significant locations. It is actually a travesty that ERA is talking this deposit up at this time. Given that we have had, in recent years, an improving relationship with them, we, we, have, we welcome the, the, uh, and acknowledge the efforts of, of ERA in their rehabilitation at Ranger, their um, cautious way of working with the majority shareholder to find additional funding to meet the shortfall there. We welcome the feasibility study going to be announced in September, a closer working relationship on cultural protection at the Ranger site, and this ongoing aspiration to mine Jabaluka and to talk it up is threatening the entire relationship with them. It's in stark contrast to everything they're doing, and quite frankly, it is misleading the market. This deposit will never be mined. This deposit does not meet the JORC code requirements of being able to be mined within 10 years. This dream is dead, and they need to move on. Justin O'Brien, he is the CEO of the Gunjapni Aboriginal Corporation, which represents the Mirar traditional owners. Now, here at the Country Hour, we put those comments from Justin to ERA. To Some very strong comments. Very strong comments. Yeah. Um, seeking a response. Um, a, a, a spokesperson for ERA said, ERA notes the Mirage statement regarding ERA's position on Jabaluka. ERA's priority is the comprehensive rehabilitation of Ranger for people and country, including meeting all its statutory and contractual obligations. Goes on to say, the long-term care and maintenance agreement ensures that no development of Jabaluka can occur without the consent of the traditional owners. Okay, thank you for that, Dan Fitzgerald. We will be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one. If you've got a question for the Bureau, send it through on the text. There has, of course, been some big rain in the VRD this week, which is creating a few headaches for people in that region. For example, just east of Timber Creek, Rainy Holcomb runs a herd of cattle and about 30 horses, which she uses for contract mustering jobs. Max Rowley gave her a call late yesterday about efforts to move some of those horses to higher ground. We thought that we would be able to try and shift our horses to higher ground and uh, I guess our first plan was to hopefully sort of, I guess, evacuate them from our block and we were going to truck them to my parents' place in Catherine. But um, we can't actually drive into the block at the moment because the access road is cut off from Watch Creek, which is flooded. So, yeah, we couldn't actually get in there. So um, I guess our plan changed slightly from being able to try and truck them out to then um, trying to organise a helicopter to come down and shift the horses for us. And we also needed to sling some hay in our stallions out there as well in the yard. So we had to sling some hay in for him. But obviously the helicopters have to battle the weather. So we got a helicopter to fly across from Kununurra this morning. And, um, yeah, they went out to try and move the horses and, yeah, they were only able to move about nine of them into a safe paddock and the rest were on the sort of wrong side of the creek to be able to go anywhere. So, um yeah, we're kind of just waiting now and hope that the rain, um, yeah, is is a bit kind to us and that the flooding's probably not as severe as it was um, from Cyclone Ellie. How many of those horses weren't you able to move? 
So, yeah, there's probably about 20 horses that we haven't been able to shift at the moment. Um, they're in the same paddock that they were in when we did um, have the flooding from Cyclone Alley. So, you know, they were safe during that time. The, the paddock was flooded, but they would have been standing in water, um, which is obviously not ideal. So, yeah, we're just hoping to get them to some higher ground where it was a bit drier for them. But, um, yeah, they'll just have to uh, swim a few laps, I think. What does it look like there at the property at the moment? Yeah, so it's pretty pretty wet here. There's like puddles everywhere. Um, we actually have a little creek that's running through our front yard. Um, you can hear a lot of the waterfalls and creeks running out the back. And um, we've had over 250 mil just in the last six days. I guess our saving grace sort of the last couple of days is that it's showering on and off. So um, although the creeks are already full and the ground is full of moisture, you know, it's not going to take as much rain, I suppose, to to get to that flood level. But, yeah, it has been sort of starting and stopping. So I guess that's our saving grace at the moment. And how much damage do you have on the property from Cyclone Ellie earlier in the year? Um, so, yeah, we, we probably would have lost about 90% of our fencing from Cyclone Ellie. A lot of it's sort of gone down the creek and um, a bit buried in the debris. So Potter, my husband, had started putting a lot of that sort of back up again over the last sort of month and a half. Um, but, yeah, I feel that it's probably gone down the creek again. <laughs> so there might be quite a bit of a clean-up after this for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there'll, there'll be definitely a lot of fencing to do and, the, you know, it's obvious that the floodgates are pretty temporary this time of year, so which, you know, we, we expect that. But, yeah, the, the rest of the fencing, which we use to sort of keep the cattle and the horses sort of off the highway, yeah, I guess that's sort of our main concern. But And that was what we were trying to um, put back up before this lot of weather. As Rainy Holcomb, who lives near Timber Creek, speaking to Max Rowley, we touched base with Rainy just a short time ago and she said it's still raining out there, the creek is still up, but nothing too drastic happened overnight all this morning, which is great. It's been some big rain in the VRD. In the last 24 hours, Upper Vic River recorded 103 millimetres. Cattle Creeks had 103. Coolibar Cattle Station, 47. Armstrong River, 49 and Kaukarinji's had 97 millimetres. We'll get the latest from the Bureau in five minutes' time. But now, time to head to the newsroom. It's one o'clock. Hi, my name's Sam Furman. I'm an apprentice at Helimuster NT. I maintain all the aerial mustering helicopters up here in the north, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Mustering cattle using a drone. Sounds pretty cool. It's been talked about for years. In a moment, you will hear from the Australian company looking to make this a commercial reality. The way I see it, it's just another form of pressure. So just like a, a dog, a motorbike, someone on a horse or helicopter, the drone acts as a form of pressure that the animals, which we proved last year, um, effectively move off. We'll also be heading to a field day in the Red Centre to learn more about mapping your cattle station properly. This is all coming up. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. A lot going on this afternoon. Rebecca Patrick is there. Uh, Beck, quite a long list of weather warnings in place. Could we start perhaps 
with the severe weather warning for damaging winds and heavy rainfall. It got updated at uh, 10.30 this morning. What can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. So um, this is all due to that low pressure system, which is now over the northern Gregory district um, between uh, Timber Creek and the WA border. Um, And so, as you mentioned, we do have that severe weather warning for damaging winds and heavy rainfall and that's mainly associated with that low pressure system um, so in terms of the damaging winds uh, it's mainly over the daily district in the Tiwi Islands um, and then we do have heavy rainfall um, mainly over the southern parts of the daily district and through the Gregory district so um, yeah and that would mean that those southern parts of the daily could get both the damaging winds and the heavy rainfall and um, yeah so quite um, significant rainfall could be um, developing over the Gregory district this afternoon mm-hmm. as well uh, with that low expected to move southeastwards over the next 24 to 48 hours. The warning says six hourly rainfall totals between 90 to 140 millimetres are possible. That's a lot. Yeah yeah um, so yeah as that system tracks further southeast um, we're looking at potentially that southern parts of the, the Gregory district as um, getting some some further rainfall this afternoon uh, yesterday uh, that area um, did receive some some fairly heavy rainfall as well We've got about 100 millimeters over a couple of locations um, uh, like Kalkaringi yesterday afternoon so um, yeah could see a repeat of that this afternoon and, and overnight this tropical low that's hanging over the VRD this afternoon what's its likely path from here? Yeah so today and tomorrow fairly slow moving to the southeast so tracking across that Gregory district Um, and then later in the week uh, expected to move further eastwards across the territory so uh, we do have a flood watch current um, that that does mention so we do have two flood warnings at the moment for uh, the upper Victoria River at Kalkaringi and also the Daly River so um, be mindful of that if you're in those areas but also the flood watch extends over a much larger area and that's associated with that low tracking eastwards over the next few days so the heavy rainfall um, will extend eastwards over northern parts of the Barclay as well um, during the week. Ooh, and how far south could the moisture get? Um, well, we're expecting um, rainfall getting down to um, so through much of the Barclay district, um, probably not too much further south than that. So probably the the northern half of the Tanami. Um, we'll see uh, some significant rainfall, particularly up around Lajamanu area. Um, uh, but yeah, not expecting too much over the southern parts, which are expected to remain pretty dry over the, the Lassiter and the Simpson district. Mm-hmm. It's just a minor flood warning in place for the Upper Vic River at this stage. But given what we've just heard, are you expecting to upgrade that in the next 24 hours? Um, at this stage, uh, our modelling is is not um, going higher than, than that minor flood level. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we will be keeping quite a close eye on um, as, as that rainfall develops. Um, but yeah, at this stage, that minor flood level is, is what it's is 
is expected, getting to around nine metres um, tonight um, and into Wednesday. So, yeah, we'll just be monitoring how much rainfall does fall through that area. But um, from about Thursday onwards, that rainfall should be easing off as it moves further east. You'll see those heavier falls over the Barclay rather than in the in that um, Victoria River area. Right. Anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon? Uh, just a... Uh, also worth mentioning the um, wind warnings over marine areas. Uh, we do have um, uh, both gale and strong... Oh, no, sorry. The gale warning has been finalised, but we do have strong wind warnings and we've just um, introduced Darwin Harbour as well into that. So strong winds over the harbour are expected today and tomorrow as well. OK. Oh, and we've got a question here from Norm in Jingley, Beck. Uh, wanting to know how much rain we've had so far this wet season. So is in Jingley. Have you got the Darwin stats there for the wet season thus far? Yeah, so I don't have Jingley specifically, but for Darwin Airport, um, we've got about 1,700 millimetres since the start of October. Um, so, yeah, we've had quite a significant uptick um, just over the last week. Uh, so has gone up to about the ninth wettest to date so far. So, yeah, definitely. So above improved. average, above average at the moment yes, for Darwin? Yeah, well, well above average for, for this time of year. Beautiful. Yep. And do you have the Catherine figures as well? Yeah, good news story for Catherine as well. So um, uh, a little over a week ago, they were tracking below average, but it has just um, just gone over that um, average line um, for the, the wet season to date. Ripper. So currently um, a little over 990 millimetres since the 1st of October. And so, yeah, some more to come, it would seem. Beautiful. Yep. Thank you, Beck. Have a lovely afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Floods can happen in a flash. That's why you need a proper emergency plan in place. Learn more about the history of flooding and flood warnings in your local area. Check your insurance. Have an emergency kit ready to go and identify an evacuation route and shelter for you and your family. Prepare, act and survive with ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Your emergency broadcaster. Well, the Northern Territory is famous for its vast cattle stations. And while pastoralists always seem to have a map on the wall or in the shed that shows the size of the place, where the fence lines are, where the rivers are, etc., could they benefit from a more detailed map? Anakai Susie has been running a mapping course for those on the land and showed Victoria Ellis some of the tools being used for rural mapping. The sound is really strange on this one, actually. It's a handheld GPS. You have to understand that the margin of error is about two metres. So as we walk along, it will record our location and record our pathway that we take. And if we come to, say, uh, a weed or a plant, or if you see a native animal or something like that, you can create a waypoint. So you mark and then you're done. And you can name the waypoints and put in associated metadata if you have the time in the field. Otherwise, this can be added in, in the, at home at the computer. So we've just come to a tree. Can you press that button? And is that 
mean now that this tree is now marked as a waypoint? Yes, and so it will also have spatial data associated with it, so it will give you latitude and longitude and location information. Cool. We are at the CDU campus in Alice Springs at the moment. Can you tell me what you're doing here today? I have flown down from Darwin to deliver an introduction to property mapping workshop. And what is a property mapping workshop? It includes um, data collection, so data from the field using GPS and data from online sources. And we will also use that data, upload it and put it into GIS software, which is Global Information Systems. You were telling me before that uh, mapping these days is all done digitally. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So once you've collected your data, um, either from in the field or online, it's all done through GIS software. So uploading the data into that and visualising it in a map form on the computer screen. Who have you got coming to the workshop today? Primarily uh, people who work on rural properties, so either property owners or staff. What sort of things have people sort of said to you about why they want to do it? I think it's a skill set that um, is super useful in the industry, um, especially for rural properties. So as I said before, like for land management, weeds, erosion, even mapping areas of land that are potential for development or for new paddocks. Mapping is also really great for uh, locating where the water runs over the so surface water drainage over the front top of the land and also for groundwater aquifers and where you can put bores down. And so much of Central Australia as well is um, unknown. How hard is it to map an area like that? It is time-consuming, but it is relatively easy. There are processes of mapping that. There is uh, online spatial data freely available through natural resource maps, which is maintained by the Northern Territory Government. And um, you can also collect this data via drones, which will give you elevation models. So you will be able to see the lay of the land by flying a drone. And it's super helpful for large areas of land. And once these maps have been created and everyone has that data, what happens then? Then um, features of the landscape can be identified and areas can be um, either protected or identified for potential future development, but also super important for identifying uh, things such as sacred sites and restricted work areas. And so that then we know that this, these areas need to be protected. How detailed can the maps be? Incredibly detailed, especially if you're flying drones, the aerial imagery, you can zoom in to identify single plants in the landscape. And so that works really well for surveying and for identifying population of threatened species, for example. And what excites you about learning how to map something? I get incredibly excited about the visual aspect the incorporating the colours, the imagery, the lines and having a final product that is easily readable by somebody who may have not actually been to the place is super exciting. That is Anakai Susie from Charles Darwin University. Talking maps with Victoria Ellis. It is 17 past one. You are tuned in to the Country Hour. In a moment, you'll hear from the Australian company that's looking to commercialise drones for mustering livestock. 
But first, let's have a song. And this is apparently a tune that goes well with drones. Here's just a snippet of Luke Chaplin explaining these mustering drones and the music that accompanies it sometimes. I can put a speaker on it and I've actually got Slim Dusty singing Woo Bullock Woo. So that's more of a party trick for these conferences that I go to. Luke, if you're listening, that's not a party trick, mate. That is a banger of a tune. Let's have some Slim and then learn more about these drones. Moving nice and slow, moving nice and slow. Luke Chaplin is a cattle producer from outback Queensland. He's a Nuffield scholar and he's the founder of Sky Kelpie. He's hoping his company can become the first in the world to commercialise drones for mustering livestock. He was one of the presenters at the Evoke Ag Conference in Adelaide where he spoke to the country hours Demetria Penagiataris. So it was bored in a uni lecture uh, in 2017 and my mate and I uh, were just daydreaming about different solutions. Um, drones were, they were definitely had been around for a few years, these consumer drones floating about, but we thought how good would it be to muster with them? So from there um, I was lucky enough to join up with Farmers to Founders, their ideas program. I then got a Nuffield scholarship um, which really opened the door, you know, PR wise uh, to some funding and support. Um, um, so last year we did uh, quite sophisticated trials in this space with Meat and Livestock Australia and Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries and we, we're really excited. So we've validated our assumptions, it works. Um, so now what our job is to build um, a range of products and services to enable livestock operators to fly the drones themselves. And when it comes to them being able to fly these drones, what sort of licences and regulations are barriers for that to be able to happen? So at the moment, um, under the regulations, there is the landholder rule, um, and it's quite cool. So it permits livestock mustering if you are under 400 feet. Um, It's your own drone on your own property, but you have to keep it within visual line of sight. So what we're proposing to um, the regulator this year is just for some more streamlined and practical uh, you know, regulations um, around this. It's very complex, time-consuming and expensive. You'll need a consultant at the moment to be able to get beyond visual line-of-sight permissions for your property. Um, so we're really hoping to break down that barrier and I think it'll really open up to the possibility of adopting this solution you know, industry-wide. How does a drone compare to traditional dogs, horses, helicopters, motorbikes? What are the benefits to having a drone? Well, Demetria, you can put a speaker on it, and I've actually got Slim Dusty singing Woo Bullock Woo. So that's more of a party trick for these conferences that I go to. Um, The way I see it, it's just another form of pressure. So just like a a dog, a motorbike, someone on a horse or helicopter, the drone acts as a form of pressure that the animals, which we proved last year, um, effectively move off. So it's all about how you apply that pressure and when you release it uh, to keep your animals in a light, responsive manner and keep them in a good frame of mind as well because that's what uh, we really want to promote is sort of that animal welfare aspect because that just has a range of uh, productivity benefits Um, if the animals are in a good state of mind. And how are the cows responding to the drones and what other benefits can you see the drone having on the land? 
Yeah, so really well, as I said, they're, they're moving off it as a form of pressure quite well and we're able to keep them in a, in a good state of mind. Um, you know, the technology allows for a range of different benefits, I think. Um, you know, with infrared cameras and, and, you know, the great zooms on them and we can start to harness some AI for detecting the animals as well, I think that will really allow for clean paddock musters and if we can make sure that all animals are accounted for, I think that's going to have benefits for fertility, you know, past pasture management, supplement management, and also pest detection as well. Um, with our trials last year, we were able to find quite a lot of wild dogs on sheep properties and really interesting, you know, finding them at night time with thermal imaging. Um, it was really effective. You're heading overseas to do some more research in this space. What are you hoping to discover? So I'm heading to Asia next month as part of my uh, Nuffield travels um, and I'll be meeting with some you know, large drone manufacturers over there basically just to get them excited about you know, this is a huge use case um, for their technology. Possibly I can convince them to you know, focus a bit of their R&D towards this solution and, you know, yeah, and possibly spark up some you know, partnerships for distribution. So um, that'll be next month. Um, I'll heading, be heading to America as well, Israel. Um, so basically uh, to explore all the you know, great technology that's happening overseas and what other countries are doing with their regulations as well. Uh, having said that, Australia is probably best place to be pioneers in this progressive regulation space because of our low air risk and ground risk in rural Australia. Um, it, it really lends itself to progressing these regulations to be able to fly these drones out of line of sight. I'm with CASA on keeping the sky safe and they've done a great job in, in keeping the aviation community safe for a long time. Um, I think we can do it in a practical and safe manner that really unlocks the full potential of this solution. And you're working towards a commercialisation of this product. How's that going? So it's going. Um, but that's why it's good to come to events like this to network uh, and just bounce ideas off people. So, you know, our, our customers are at the forefront and we're using some really, you know, excited, energetic early adopters and we're going to learn off them just as much as they learn off us. So uh, really keen to connect um, with people who want to get into drone mustering. Um, we're here to help and, and let's get through it together. That is Luke Chaplin from Outback Queensland. He is the founder of Sky Kelpie. It is time now in the country hour to head to the sale yards. With all the latest prices out of Roma, here's Trevor Hess. Numbers at the Roma store sale today remain relatively close to the previous week's level at 6,224 head. Cattle were drawn from the usual supply areas plus 353 head from New South Wales. A good panel of restocker and feeder buyers were present and active and not all the major export processor operators were in attendance. Lightweight yielding steers to restockers were scarce, however there was a large number of heavyweight yielding steers to feed and buyers were able to absorb the large numbers plus maintain firm prices. Yielding steers under 200 kilos returning to paddock made to 534. Lightweight yielding steers 200 to 280 kilos made to 515 to average 462. Yielding steers under 330 kilos to restockers made to 486 to average 446. Medium weight yielding steers to feed 
Speed made to 430 to average 390 and the restock lines made to 433 to average 406. Heavyweight yielding steers to feed made to 392, a large number at 374. Heavy grown steers to export processors made to 333 to average 320. This has been Trevor Hiss from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Trevor. I've got a text here from Ian in the bush who says, Matt, just listen to that yarn about GPS mapping of cattle stations. The interviewee kept mentioning new developments. So does that mean station people GPS survey their land, upload it, and it's then available for oil and gas development? Question mark is the question this afternoon from Ian. I'm not too sure, Ian. I'm not too sure. I can tell you that there's quite a few road closures in place this afternoon as we go to air. Some of the ones that you need to be aware of include the Victoria Highway. Highway 1, it's closed between Butler Creek, west of Timber Creek and the WA border. So Highway 1 is out there near the WA border. There's water over the Vic Highway just to the east of Timber Creek as well. The Roper Highway deemed impassable with flooding at Strengways Creek. Stewart Highway's got water over the road in between Tennant and Three Ways, so just be careful there on the Stewart. The Tenamai Road, it's still closed between Granite's Mine and the WA border, and the Sandover closed between the Amaru El Kedra boundary and the Queensland border. There is a tropical low hovering over the VRD as we go to air this afternoon is expected to deliver some significant rain over the next sort of 24, 48 hours. Stay up to date via the Weather Bureau, the Roads NT website, and of course the ABC, your emergency broadcaster. I will catch you at the same time tomorrow at 12.30. Keep it rural. Whoa, bullocks, whoa, bullocks, whoa, bullocks, whoa. Hold up the lead, keep moving nice and slow. Moving nice and slow, moving nice and slow. Whoa, bullocks, whoa there, you bullocks. Uh-huh.